0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stat. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damien Garde.
0: It's Thursday, January 14th, and for this week's episode, we're going to take a slightly different approach.
1: Yeah, we usually bring you three segments, including one or two guest interviews. This week, it's just the three of us chatting about the biotech news and buzz that emerged from this week's virtual incarnation of the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. And of course, it is nearly impossible to produce an episode of Read Out Loud these days without something
2: COVID related, so we will, of course, have that too.
1: So, what this sounds like, gang, is a mega lightning round episode. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus Macaulay, the Chief Revenue Officer of STAT. I'm here with Chris Banco, the CEO of Conexa, a software company that powers patient-centric research. Chris, what are some of the ways we can make digital health tools more meaningful for patients?
2: Developing a new digital tool to collect data from patients outside of a clinic provides researchers an opportunity to learn new and important things about diseases and their symptoms. But we need to make sure that the patients who use wearables and sensors understand why that data which contribute to tools known as digital biomarkers, are so important. One way to make sure this happens is to engage with patients throughout the process of collecting their data. At Conexa, we consult with patients as well as caregivers in the development, implementation, and the interpretation of digital biomarkers.
1: Thanks, Chris. For more information, visit connexahealth.com. That's K-O-N-E-K-S-A Health.com.
0: Joe Biden is heading to the White House. The US is grappling with an economic crisis, and biotech is debating the amyloid hypothesis. 2021 is starting off quite a bit like 2009, thanks in part to Eli Lilly and some surprising data on a new treatment for Alzheimer's disease.
2: The biggest story coming out of J.P. Morgan this week was news that a Lilly drug called Donanemab managed to significantly slow the progression of Alzheimer's in a small clinical trial. So why this is so notable is denanimab, like so many failed drugs before it, is designed to attack toxic proteins in the brain called amyloid, and that was reason enough to reignite the decade-plus-long
1: argument over whether clearing out amyloid can actually make a difference for patients with Alzheimer's disease. So before we get into the implications of all that, we should summarize what we actually know. Uh, here's what Lilly disclosed in a study involving 272 patients with early-stage Alzheimer's. Those who got donanemab saw their cognition and function decline at a rate that was 32% slower than those who got a placebo. The company used a metric called the Integrated Alzheimer's Disease Rating Scale, which we should note is a different measurement than what we've seen in past trials.
0: And that's about all the detail we got so far. Lily said it would present full data at a conference in March. But until then, we've only got a press release to go off of.
2: So I guess I'm curious what you guys think. What are the implications of this? All the caveats that, that would apply to any Alzheimer's study, let alone one this small. But it arrives as we await word from the FDA on a different uh, amyloid targeting treatment from Biogen called aducanumab, which we've spent a lot of time talking about on this podcast. And then here comes this lily news, like a comet from the sky. How does
1: this change kind of the state of play of amyloid? So to me, this is just, it's like deja vu, right? I mean, it's, we sort of fall into the, into this pattern of just keep recycling the same arguments about the, you know, the efficacy of amyloid, whether, you know, drugs that target amyloid are effective in Alzheimer's. And I don't know what to make of these data. I I mean, I think what it says is that we will be having this debate for years to come, even after we get a decision on aducanamab.
0: I totally agree. I mean, the sense of deja vu was so strong. I was looking back at articles trying to see, you know, what had happened through the years with these drugs targeting beta amyloid. And I got back to, you know, 2010 when a Lilly drug called semagasostat failed. And there was this great NPR story actually quoting Bob Langrath, who at the time was at Forbes and now is at Bloomberg, my old colleague, uh, saying that this was really going to call into question the amyloid hypothesis. (laughs) (laughs) And this was 11 years ago. Um, And, you know, we had Dave Ricks on. On CNBC this week to talk with him he's the CEO of Eli Lilly and you know he was the first one to note how many failures they've had in their 30 years of working on Alzheimer's disease at that company um, focused on on this target. Um, One thing he noted that's different about this trial is its size. It was small and he said that was a reason he was more optimistic about the signal they saw that they saw such a strong signal in a small study made him feel like it had to be an even stronger signal. Um, he noted that in the past, they had gone to these very large Phase 3 trials because they thought they would have to in order to see a signal. And here they did this small trial to see if you know this was even worth pursuing uh, before going to that big one. So I thought that was pretty interesting, but I also think, you know, we're still arguing over whether amyloid is a cause of Alzheimer's or you know, like Jeff Jonas, the former CEO of Sage, who's still at Sage but in a different role. Um, you know, he he's put it as he thinks it's more like a scar or a, a scab, where, you know, you you pull it off, that doesn't fix the underlying wound. And we just don't have those answers yet.
1: And Damien, doesn't this all sound familiar to you? I mean, aren't these <laughs> the same kind of arguments that Biogen has made? Yeah, I mean, a sort of counter take on
2: the history of amyloid. I mean, the headline is that all the, the drugs have failed uh, in one way or another. But one thing that's been running through it is the way that companies have conducted clinical trials has gotten more and more refined. So thinking back to solanazumab, another Eli Lilly amyloid treatment that has uh, failed multiple times, when they were enrolling that trial, the first phase three trial for solanazumab, they didn't really have the technology to make sure that patients had amyloid in their brains. So they ended up treating people who biologically wouldn't benefit from the treatment, even if it were proven to um, have an effect on Alzheimer's disease. And we've slowly just been hiving that downward. So the ostensibly positive Biogen studies enrolled patients who really did have amyloid in their brains, and then this Lilly study that we're talking about today, not only did that, but also preferentially enrolled patients who didn't have high levels of a different protein called tau in their brains. And tau is sort of another can of worms with respect to the debate over the role it plays in the actual sort of pathology of Alzheimer's. But I think what we're kind of getting to is something that neurologists have said for many, many years, which is that in the future, the phrase Alzheimer's disease will sound quaint the way that cancer is too big an umbrella term to talk about the many types of cancer. And so maybe, I guess I'm looking for a silver lining here, maybe the going forward effect of this approach is that we will not have a statin-like Uh, therapy for all types of what we consider Alzheimer's disease, we will have treatments that have proven their benefits in small subsets of patients who have, you know, high amyloid, but low tau and maybe some other biomarker. Um, And then that is the way that we finally kind of cross the threshold of getting a disease modifying therapy for Alzheimer's is by doing it for, you know, 10, 20% of whatever the population who has a certain type of disease in their brain.
1: And I want to bring this conversation back to the present because I want to ask you guys a question about Biogen, uh, which obviously we know we're waiting for that FDA decision on Anacadamab. It's expected uh, March 7th, maybe before March 7th. Um, there was a report this week uh, from Biocentury that Janet Woodcock uh, is going to take over as interim FDA commissioner. You know, this is be post January 20th. I wonder, Meg, Damien, If you think that that has any impact on what the ultimate decision about aducanumab might be.
0: Well, I think it's such an interesting question because, of course, Janet Woodcock, I think in many ways, you know, was most public as a regulator uh, through the Sarepta um, saga with, with their first Duchenne muscular dystrophy drug. And that one was one that the FDA's scientists in the review, you know, felt really strongly um against uh, some of them anyway and a, an advisory panel actually voted against and it seemed like uh, Janet Woodcock was the one there that sort of overruled and said we should approve this drug um so it does seem like she in some situations is more flexible on things like this and so in some ways you might think oh well, having encouraged the acting commissioner at this time when Biogen's Alzheimer's drug is up in front of the FDA maybe bodes well for Biogen's prospects. But another way to look at it might be you know, when she's in that sort of um, top job, she might be less likely to weigh in on a drug review because the FDA commissioners, you know, typically try to stay above that um, from what we've observed. You know, Rob Califf didn't directly step in, but when he heard from Janet Woodcock uh, on the Sarepta decision, you know, he took what she recommended and he went with that. Um, So, you know, who knows, I guess is the answer from me.
1: I'll take the contrarian side of this. I think Sarepta ultimately blew up in Janet's face. I think that it made her look bad. I think her motives for pushing through the accelerated approval of surreptus drugs was good and actually I agreed with it at the time. But I think what we've learned since then is that, um, that maybe those drugs don't work as well and that uh, there was a lot of delay in confirming the the efficacy of those drugs. And Alzheimer's, the stakes is like, just so much higher, right? I mean, there are just millions of people with Alzheimer's versus just very few people with Duchenne. And I think that experience for her would probably make her more cautious.
0: I have one more thought on this, which is Biogen has been encouraged to continue with aducanumab's development by the FDA. So there's somebody in there, at least with some power, who is telling them, there is enough here for you to keep going. And the FDA's um, tone toward Biogen was, night and day from its tone on Sarepta um, at the advisory committee meeting to the extent that, you know, we talked about this Biogen and the FDA seemed like they were on the same team. So we may not be, you know, facing a real controversy here from the FDA's side, even after the advisory committee really shot down um, the prospects, you know, at the end of the day, the decisions in the FDA's hands and somebody there likes this drug.
1: I spoke to a bunch of uh, investors over the last couple of days, uh, after they've had meetings with Biogen during the JP Morgan conference. And what I heard sort of consistently was that. Biogen executives are pretty defiant, and they keep insisting that, you know, whatever happened at the adcom, it doesn't necessarily mean that the FDA is going to uh, reject the drug, that it's just an advisory role. And, you know, they the whatever votes happened. And we know the votes were overwhelmingly negative. That doesn't necessarily mean that the FDA is going to agree. So they're sort of defiant in that way. Um, you know, someone said to me that that seemed delusional, that, that they seemed to like be out of touch with reality in Biogen. But, you know, I guess we'll know soon enough.
0: In the vein of topics that are interesting in the biotech in this lightning round, I wonder your guys' thoughts on, on Janet Woodcock in general and taking this sort of acting commissioner role. I guess I just don't know enough about government agencies, but why would she just not be made commissioner? And maybe she doesn't want to be because she likes being at FDA and being this career official there. And when you're commissioner, you're changed, you know, based on the president often. Um, but but why wouldn't she just be made the commissioner? I
2: think, I mean, one of the clearest bits of transparency we've gotten into how the FDA works was that Sarepta situation. And one of my takeaways from it is that Janet Woodcock in her current position as head of the, the drug reviewing arm of the FDA, seems to have more power and influence over the actual decision making there than the political appointees who who lead the organization seem to. I think part of that is a, is a function of the job, but also the way that FDA commissioners tend to look at it, especially Califf, uh, Robert Califf, as you mentioned, and then Scott Gottlieb, who immediately followed him. I think they see themselves more as the public face of it to advocate for the agency to, you know, interface with the, the White House and et cetera. But all of the nuts and bolts of things like drug reviews are usually left to career staff and the sort of like FDA deep state that really runs things. And from at least as far as I can. Damien, you use the word deep state. That used to be a deep politis. <laughs> I just want to I, I hope we can return to deep state being uh, a thing I can say while winking without uh, dog whistling anyway. I think that within the framework of, of, of the FDA as it actually works, Janet Woodcock seems to have much more power and influence there than she might as FDA commissioner. And so it wouldn't shock me if, if she's simply not interested in that job because she can do more to actualize you know her ideology when it comes to how drugs should be reviewed at the FDA uh, in her current role than she could in that one.
0: So, you know, we mentioned Sarepta um, and their previous uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy drug, but we also got some news coming into the week of JP Morgan about Sarepta's gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And it was really kind of um, disappointing news. Um, And then, you know, there were sort of questions about gene therapy, like all throughout the week. Adam, I wonder sort of what your reflections are about what we saw from that space this week.
1: Yeah, I feel like it's not was not a great week overall for gene therapy. And I think my overall, you know, without getting into all the specifics, I think my my overall take on gene therapy is that these therapies, the development of these therapies is going to take longer than most people expected. I mean, we sort of got accustomed to seeing companies issue data on like a handful of patients showing some kind of marginal benefit. you know and so everyone the stocks went up and we all got very excited oh gene therapy is working you know here it is in three or four patients but well i think the lesson that we learned from Sarepta this week was that when you go ahead and run a pretty significantly sized randomized controlled study you can run into problems and and that's what happened with Sarepta where they're just not showing the functional benefit of their gene therapy in these kids with Duchenne and you know and then with BioMarin we're seeing some longer term data that look okay but still the FDA wants even more they want 2 years worth of data for their hemophilia A gene therapy so i think it's it's a little bit of a moment of reflection i think for gene therapy in that you know these early data are great and they're very encouraging and promising, and we can use all those sort of adjectives. But at the end of the day, I think we're, we're really going to need to see randomized controlled trials. We're going to see data from those studies. And, and that takes a while. Yeah,
2: I, I agree with that. I think I feel like it, it's worth kind of decoupling what's happening clinically especially in the case of biomarin where where their gene therapy does appear to work it's just a matter as you said of gathering more data which is like the normal thing for developing a drug um from the perception of investors because a lot of those stocks kind of traded down as the reality of those timelines set in and then conversely and this is something else we want to talk about there there seemed to be this sort of like wall street distracted boyfriend meme because as this was happening the stock prices of CRISPR genome editing companies who are much earlier in the stage maybe still at that point that gene therapy was at where you can still dream big about how transformational these things will be those stocks soared uh alongside jp morgan and have have all year and and into the latter part of last year. So it it kind of feels like a sliding doors moment, or maybe, you know, the investors who are bidding up CRISPR stocks today, not really learning the lesson that's being offered uh, of gene therapy stocks, which are a little further along in the process.
0: Well, speaking of those investors, you guys took a look at one in particular um, that was causing a lot of movement in the CRISPR space. Tell us about that.
1: Well, yeah, you know, you've got this portfolio manager. Her name is Kathy Wood. She runs Ark Invest, which um, has a couple of pretty high-profile now uh, ETFs, which kind of blend sort of the tech stuff, like you know Tesla, with now CRISPR genome editing. And you know, she kind of sees CRISPR genome editing companies as kind of the biotech version of Tesla. And you know, billions of dollars are flowing into these ETFs that she manages, and as a result, the stocks of the you know the stocks that she buys for those ETFs. And again, it's a lot of these CRISPR genome names. It's you know CRISPR therapeutics, Beam Therapeutics, Intellia. You've got cell therapy stuff in there like Fade, Adaptimmune. All these stocks. I mean, they were all up huge this week, and they've been up that way for several weeks now. Um, valuations of these companies are getting pretty lofty i guess maybe is the sort of polite term to use right damien <laughs> they are and it's it's an interesting dynamic because
2: quite often when biotech stocks soar we can you know the patient zero is some executive overstating um, their potential or, or the speed at which they'll be able to actualize it but in this case i don't feel like that's happened i mean i haven't tracked every single thing but i've, I've listened to presentations and stuff i don't feel like any of the CRISPR companies are over their skis it's just this kind of market phenomenon. And and the downside to that is that, you know, market phenomena tend to come back to earth. I don't know what form it will take, but one assumes that these valuations will decrease in, in the natural course of events in 2021. And then they will be grousing about like, oh, why are stocks going down? And so I do feel... A bit of sympathy for these executives which feels kind of weird to say in that they are benefiting from something that they didn't cause but they can probably see on the horizon that they will suffer the ramifications of its reversal
1: um to no fault of their own we don't have an elon musk of biotech no i don't think we we? do Uh,
0: stefan boncel i wasn't gonna
2: say that (laughs) maybe a
0: little bit (laughs) wait but why wouldn't you say it is it an insult
1: i don't know maybe i guess it depends on your perspective
2: yeah, exactly. One thing that is interesting to me about the ARK Invest phenomenon of kind of looking at genome editing or gene therapy stocks as as sort of tech-ish or tech-adjacent is it kind of follows the weird techification of things in, like, American capitalism where, like, WeWork became a tech company, but it's just a commercial real estate company. Tesla is considered a tech company, but, like, they make cars, Um, Same thing with with Uber, which just connects drivers to riders. I know there's technology involved in these things, but there's technology. I'm talking into a microphone attached to a laptop. I wouldn't say that stat is a tech company. (laughs) Um, But and I think the, the risk of that is that when you invite people to think of non tech things in the tech framework where it's like we have to achieve scale and we blah, 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 all that stuff. That's not really how developing drugs works. And so I worry that we might be setting up expectations improperly when inevitably one of these companies has a very biotech-like problem, which is to say, it just turns out one of your therapies is toxic or it just straight up doesn't work, um, that people in a tech mindset might react improperly to that.
1: Yeah, I I would say bad things happen when you start to believe that technology is the solution or the way to uh, access or solve biological problems, right? I mean, biology is a thing unto itself. And I think we've seen companies that have tried to sort of apply, you know, kind of the Silicon Valley mantra to biology and uh, it has not worked well.
0: Right. Well, it's not predictable in the way that technology is. I wonder, you know, I was thinking about What other times in biotech history we've probably been in a similar situation? And first, I thought, you know, there's all this hype around CRISPR because, you know, um, the CRISPR discoverers just won the Nobel Prize, Walter Isaacson is writing a book about it. You know, I wondered, oh, did RNA um, maybe have RNA interference, maybe have a similar thing happen, you know, back when, um, you know, its uh, pioneers won the Nobel Prize and, you know, alnylam was being founded. Um, But then I thought, you know, maybe... More similar is the the genome boom that happened around the same time as the dot com boom, um, when the genome was getting first sequenced, and there was all of this expectation that within a decade we would be curing cancer and every other disease because we'd understand its genetic roots. Everybody remembers that Bill Clinton speech about it.
1: Yeah, that's hundred percent correct. Hundred percent, I agree with you, Meg. You know, and I can I haven't been able to pull out my old man card, so I'm going to pull it out right now, <laughs> remind you young whippersnappers of a JP. Morgan Conference, I think it was 2002. Uh, I was sitting in a room and I was listening to a presentation from Mark Levin at the time, was CEO of Millennium Pharmaceuticals, which was kind of at the forefront, uh, in the center of all this genomic revolution stuff going on. And he told investors then that they would have one, dr- at least one drug approved every single year based on the learnings from the genome uh, and this whole genomic revolution. That didn't happen. Uh, and it's a really only kind of like 20 years later, like today, you know, last few years, where we've kind of really been able to leverage all of that genomic information to develop drugs much more uh, rapidly. So I think it just takes a lot longer than people think.
0: Well, maybe then to Damien's point, the executives of CRISPR companies of today have at least learned the lesson uh, from those executives of the, the genome focused companies of yesteryear. Um, don't get over your skis.
2: Yes, I have submitted my resignation letter yesterday to the current administration, thanking them for uh, giving me the opportunity to help our country and our people, as well as people of the world.
1: So we have managed to get deep into this podcast without mentioning COVID. So that must change. Uh, Meg, you had a great scoop this week at your day job at CNBC reporting on the departure of Operation Warp Speed chief Monsef Slawi, tell us about that and maybe give us some of your thoughts on like the legacy of Slawi. you know, when we think about the pandemic years from now.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be really, really interesting to kind of learn how history looks back at this effort, this Operation Warp Speed effort, and Monsef Slawi's role in it. So what we know is that he was asked to resign. He submitted that resignation um, on Tuesday the 12th, and that was at the request of the Biden team. Um, Essentially, he'll stay 30 days because that's in his current contract. Um, You know, either side has to give 30 days notice before the the role ends. Um, so that puts him past the January 20th inauguration and the transition. But as of January 20th, he's not in charge anymore. He's not the, the you know, science advisor, the um, chief advisor to Operation Warp Speed. He'll essentially be more of a consultant. So his role is really going to be diminished um, after January 20th. And it's just interesting to kind of see how the Biden team is sort of looking at Operation Warp Speed and their approach to um, vaccines for this pandemic. You know, arguably, and Slaoui has said this himself, his, his value add is, is diminishing. You know, he oversaw development of vaccines. There are two on the market. J&J's phase three data are due at, you know, really any minute. And um, there's more behind that. And, And so the development part is sort of well on its way. In terms of the initial legacy, anyway, I've been trying to sort of get a sense because, you know, you do hear from some people the criticisms of Operation Warp Speed in that, well, Pfizer, it was under the umbrella of Operation Warp Speed, but it it was also much more independent. So then I, I've been trying to get a sense of what really was the role um, of Operation Warp Speed. And I got uh, some reflections from Stéphane Sell, the CEO of Moderna, which arguably was the Operation Warp Speediest uh, company of all the Operation Warp Speed companies. You know, they got $4 billion in US funding for their vaccine. And what he told me was that Monsef was instrumental. Um, he said he set up the portfolio approach, three technologies, two companies per technology. He got the funding, he coordinated BARDA and NIH. He got FDA to issue clear guidelines. So that's the perspective of a a CEO who, you know, was working with Slaoui. We should also note, of course, Slaoui was on the board of Moderna at the time when he was announced as the chief advisor to Operation Warp Speed. He stepped down immediately, but there was immediately this outcry about his ties to industry. He refused to sell his shares in Glaxo Smith which he said was, you know, he accrued over 30 years of working there and they're his retirement. You got the sense, you know, that there was an emotional part of this for him that he did not want to sell those shares that he earned over those decades. Uh, but he was attacked by Elizabeth Warren uh, he responded in a very emotional video directly to Elizabeth Warren, where he revealed that you know he's a registered Democrat. He's not actually supportive of the policies of the Trump administration, but he did this despite that because the pandemic is, is so big and bigger than any one of us, I think is how we put it. Um, when the news came out, the reaction from the biotech industry was maybe as you'd expect. I mean, the biotech and pharma industry feels very misunderstood and very underappreciated. And that was really on full display here. I heard from Cedric Francois, who's the CEO of a biotech company called Apellis, who talked about how important Slaoui has been in the pharma industry. Um, he told me you know, the way that Slaoui organized development at GSK is a model that's been emulated by many since. Uh, he says it's easy to write off anything that Donald Trump has done as evil, but the story around Operation Warp Speed will go into history as an integral part of one of the great accomplishments in the history of medicine. Uh, so you have the the biotech and pharma industry seeing Slowey as a hero, uh, but certainly a lot of sort of probably political um, views of the entire operation um, as, as, you know, one that's negative or, or one that, you know, at least didn't contribute to getting these vaccines done so quickly, which they say, you know, was a company thing.
2: That's a really good point. And I think the legacy aspect is going to be interesting as to how it shakes out, because I think you know, Meg, I agree with everyone you cited there, Slaoui's role in Operation Warp Speed, which was focused on the development of these vaccines, has been, as far as we've seen, an unqualified success. Like, words like unprecedented and historic get thrown around a lot, but like truly, it's unprecedented that that what has happened with respect to vaccine development has happened so quickly. And as, as far as we understand from the outside looking in, he was integral to that. However, the story of Operation Warp Speed also includes the vaccine rollout, which has nothing to do with Monsef Slaoui, as far as I understand, at least, but hasn't been going that well and is still ongoing. So it's probably unfair. But if his legacy is tied to warp speed as an endeavor, um, I think it's yet to be decided how it shakes out because we've done this incalculably difficult thing of developing vaccines. And we are currently stuttering at the presumably more tractable problem of getting them into the arms of people in this country.
1: I think you guys both covered it well. I mean, I think, you know, you'll look at him as someone who was integral to the development of the vaccines, you know, whether or not Pfizer was part of Operation Warp Speed or not. I mean, just the framework of Operation Warp Speed, you know, I think assisted Pfizer in some way. Um, You know, just the money, just the the fact that all those contracts were signed. Um, And so, you know, I'm willing to say, you know, Great job, Monsef, and thanks for doing what you did. (laughs) (laughs) One thing on, on,
2: you know, Pfizer being used as a counterexample to the importance of Warp Speed because they were able to do what they did uh, largely independently. I think that's fair, but the issue I think that Warp Speed was designed to address is there's a finite number of Pfizers in the world. So, yes, Pfizer has the independent, you know, wealth and expertise and scale to do this, but Moderna, for example, did not, Novavax does not. Um, And the fact that they've been able to come as far as they have Moderna, obviously, um, you know, with with a vaccine that's authorized around the world and Novavax potentially there as well is a testament to the warp speed effort. So I feel like you can kind of have it both ways. I, I don't know. It's not necessarily as two sided an argument as it's sometimes framed as.
1: And that does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for
2: producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke.
2: And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you think Biotech will be back in person for JP Morgan next year. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloudstatnews.com.
1: And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts.
0: See you next week. We'll mm-hmm.